Hello, and welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on exploring the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which occurs when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites change over time and no longer respond to antibiotics and other medicines. In other words, they become superbugs. In this podcast, we will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to find out what's causing antimicrobial resistance, how it affects the lives of ordinary people, and most importantly, what can we do to stop it? This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm Dr. Marty Peterson, and I've spent 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher. I will be your host for this series. In this episode, we will focus on infection caused by Clostridioides difficile, also known as C. diff or CDI. C. diff can cause deadly diarrhea and is the most common healthcare-associated infection in the United States. It is estimated that there are almost half a million C. diff infections in the United States each year, and the incidence is rising in Europe and Canada as well. CDC has classified resistant C. diff to be an urgent threat to our healthcare system. C. diff can affect anyone. In fact, most cases of C. diff occur after or during a course of antibiotics. Other risk factors include being 65 or older, a recent stay at a hospital or nursing home, and a weakened immune system, such as people with HIV AIDS, cancer, or organ transplant patients. Many of us have this bacteria as part of our gut microbiome, but it only causes illness when given the opportunity. C. diff can be notoriously hard to diagnose and treat. In some cases, it's highly resistant to antibiotics. In this episode, we will explore the importance of research and innovation for the treatment of patients with C. diff, including the use of fecal transplants, and what we can all do to protect ourselves and others from this infection. My name is Christina Furman. I'm from Columbia, Missouri. I'm a stay-at-home mom and a homeschool mom, and I have two kids, uh, Oren is five and Pearl is seven. So Christina, let's start at the beginning of where you first became associated and infected with Clostridium difficile. Absolutely. So I was 30, 31 years old, and it was my wedding season. So I was happily getting ready to marry the man of my dreams. And it was just an exciting time. And so I didn't think anything of it when I went for a root canal and was prescribed a broad-spectrum antibiotic, uh, clindamycin, as a preventative measure for infection. I didn't think anything of it because, frankly, I took antibiotics somewhat frequently, I think as frequently as most Americans take. You know, they have a pesky cold or something's not going away. So we go to our doctor and ask for antibiotics, which... I did, you know, somewhat frequently. And so when that was prescribed to me, um, I didn't think anything of it. Um, but within two weeks after I took the, uh, the broad spectrum antibiotic, I was, I was beginning to feel this fatigue that I have never known. It was overwhelming fatigue and brain fog. I was having a lot of discomfort in my abdomen 
And then that turned into frequent bowel movements. And then that turned into just nightmare of diarrhea. And I had never heard of C. diff before, so I didn't know what to look for at all. So I went to the doctor and, and I, you know, got some fluids and nobody was really sure what was going on with me because I was so young and I was so healthy that C. diff never even came up. And so I went uh, back and forth frequently until finally um, he took one look at me, the doctor that I was going to, and he said, we have to hospitalize you. You look really bad. So I was hospitalized and immediately then diagnosed with C. diff. And um, I knew something was wrong when I saw the uh, nurse come in in full gear and told me I was in isolation for an infection that I had never heard of before. And, and being pres- prescribed clindamycin for root canal is pretty routine. What was the timeline from when you initially took the clindamycin until you ended up in the hospital? I would say the timeline would be uh, two weeks onset and probably five weeks um, when I was hospitalized. And and I didn't realize until later that that time where, where I was waiting to be diagnosed was actually very dangerous because I had taken some Imodium to stop the diarrhea um, so I could be in my best friend's wedding. And I didn't realize that could have actually killed me because of all the toxins um, could have could have really, it could have led to what's called mega colon, which you don't want. And um, so I'm very fortunate there. And so, yes, when I was prescribed the broad spectrum antibiotic, I I wasn't told anything about what could happen. I truly thought antibiotics were the most harmless drug there is. So take us through your course of treatment once you're diagnosed and now you're hospitalized. So now I'm hospitalized and uh, they start me off with uh, the first line of defense, which is flagell. And, you know, I had, I think, a seven day course and and I showed improvement, but I was pretty sick. Um, so they told me to work for three months. You're really sick. We need you to, you know, get get better. So I was on the clindamycin, I'm sorry, the flagell for a week. And then as soon as I got off, as soon as I got off within one day, it came back extremely strong. So I went back to the ER where they told me to go and the infection was back and it was pretty bad. So we switched to vancomycin, which is a second line of defense. And it became this unending merry-go-round of different methods of using vancomycin. And I was on it for four months. We did the pulse method, the taper method. And then basically I was just on vancomycin continuously. And then we tried the third line of defense, which is um, deficit. And that one was also ineffective for me. Um, Every time that um, I took the medicine and stopped, it would come back and it was always stronger. and, And I knew that I was in trouble fast. Just to talk a little bit about your, what was going on in your life at this time, were you also still planning your wedding or? I was. Um, it was a very, it was a sad time. You know, C. diff robbed from me what should have been the happiest time of my life. And, uh, you know, I I was basically living in the hospital. I was in and out constantly. Um, I was on gut rest every time I was in there, you know, five days at a time. I couldn't eat. I couldn't even drink water and I couldn't even smell food. 
I was in isolation. It was very lonely. I couldn't go on a walk. Um, I would have had to be pushed anyway. <laughs> but um, so, you know, I didn't get that experience of shopping for wedding dress with my bridesmaids and, you know, just having fun. I ordered my shoes and my veil and my earrings and all of that stuff from the hospital bed. And and some of the nurses were so sweet because they'd come and want to talk about my wedding. And, and I didn't know if I'd even be out of the hospital to attend my wedding. And 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 it's the thing about C. diff is it's just a really degrading sickness. You know, you have uncontrollable, explosive diarrhea. And that is far from the, you know, blushing bride I was hoping to be. And but thankfully, you know, my fiance, now husband, still told me I was beautiful. And that really helped me just get through that darkness. Did you start to become more informed over the course of this? And, and if these other more first line, second line, third line antibiotics were, weren't addressing the disease and you kept having all this refractory disease and, and the symptomatology where did you go from there? Is it Was it partly you informing yourself and coming up with alternative strategies? I knew that an alternative strategy had to happen. And um, I was too weak to do much research. I mean, you know, your brain is so affected by your gut, I learned. Um, and so my family did it for me. And that's where I had a lot of the information. And then, you know, that led to me researching as well. And so... You know, I think medical journals, extremely reliable. The CDC's website was was really helpful to me. And then finding other people who have suffered from it and also, you know, non-for-profits that and organizations that deal with that topic, like the Peggy Lillis Foundation, um, which I'm a part of. And, um, you know, there was an alternate treatment for me. And my doctors did not pose that as an alternate treatment for me, because I'm not sure what the reasoning was. I think mainly they were just uncomfortable with it. And that alternate treatment was the fecal transplant. And so uh, my mom first presented that as an option to me. And so at first I was really turned off by the fact of putting someone else's poop in your gut. But then I became so sick that I knew that had to happen. Um, my doctor came into my my um, hospital room and he had the talk with me about how patients die from C. diff and we may have to remove your colon to get you over this. And, and I mentioned the fecal transplant to him and he was just not responsive at all. And, and one night I was so sick that I, I truly believed I wouldn't wake up after I went to sleep, I was just so weak. And it's then that I decided I have to take care of myself because this isn't working. I, I have to at least try this alternate treatment. And so then I did, we, my parents and I helped, you know, scheduled this, this uh, fecal transplant at a research hospital. They welcomed me with open arms and I had, um, I had to have two of them. Um, but they, they were effective. And it's because of that, that I'm here. I believe that. And, um, and I, I wish it hadn't taken so long to get there. I had lost a lot in the meantime, you know, I barely got out of the hospital to attend my own wedding. We had to have a chair 
by the tree I was standing next to in case I couldn't stand. And then we were supposed to go to Sweden for my, for our honeymoon, but I was back in the hospital. So I missed out on a lot of my, of my wedding time. For those listeners that may not know what fecal transplant is, in your own words, can you describe that, the the basis for it and and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, our gut has a microbiome of good and bad bacteria and, and C. diff is the bad opportunistic bacteria that's just wiping everything out. And so, you know, a fecal transplant is you have a healthy screened donor um, and they're screened to see, you know, if they have any opportunistic bacteria in there and their, their microbiome is going to be balanced. And so you take a stool sample from them and then via colonoscopy, they administer that stool sample inside of your intestines and it does its magic. And it's really that simple. And within, you know, a couple of days, I really started to to see a major improvement. And, you know, as unsavory as it sounds, first of all, I'm grateful that it's there because some superbugs have absolutely no alternate treatment. And secondly, during this whole process, you're you're under, you don't see it, you know, it's not served to you on a platter. Like it's a simple, (laughs) uh, safe way of, of healing you. And, you know, after I recovered, I really thought this nightmare was over. I really did. And then a year after my recovery, I gave birth to a, just a sweet, healthy little baby girl named Pearl. And, you know, I decided that going forward, I'm just going to be just going to be more um, smart about how I use antibiotics in my children and me. So, you know, I tried to protect her every way I could. I I had a natural birth. I breastfed and didn't give her any antibiotics. Thankfully, she didn't need any. And so uh, when she was 20, 20 months old, I noticed that she was getting sick. And it looked a little familiar to me. Um, You know, she had a lot of a lot of uh, bowel movements and they became really bad looking. And and I became immediately concerned. But of course, I thought there is absolutely no way she could have a C. diff infection. So I kind of just blew it off like that's just not a possibility. And I brought her to our doctors and, you know, they thought maybe toddler's diarrhea. We weren't too sure what it was. So, excuse me, they referred me to a specialist and the specialist said, she's fine. Don't worry about her. But this was over the course of two months and she continued to get worse. She was thin. She was running out of energy. And one night in the middle of the night, um, she woke us up and she was completely white. Her, her lips were white. Her face was white and she was just covered in her own mess. And so I said, we have to go to the hospital now. And we brought her to the hospital and they screened her and nobody thought about C. diff. I even told the doctor I was, I had C. diff, but there's no way she can have C. diff. I just didn't realize. And so we were, uh, they were going to release her and send her to another specialist when she spiked a fever by the grace of God, she spiked a fever, which meant they had to admit her. So she was immediately admitted into the hospital and tested for C. diff and diagnosed with a C. diff infection. And it brought me to my knees. 
I could not believe that despite all that I had done, it was back in our lives. And by this time, I was nine months pregnant with our son. So I'm about to give birth to a little boy um, who I'm worried will contract it. I was very worried about my daughter. She was in near critical condition. And I was worried about myself getting it as well. And so um, it was such a dark time. And once again, C. diff was, was dealing what should have been the best moments of my life, you know, preparing a nursery and, um, you know, spending the last couple of days just having one child. And, and so I watched her endure the exact same thing that I had gone through, the gut rest, the isolation. She was so scared. Um, she was by now 22 months old. It took two months to diagnose her. And, and uh, you know, seeing the doctors come in in full gear. And, and so, you know, she, she went through the same thing that I did, which is the recurrences. And as soon as the recurrences started, I said, I know what to do now. I know what to do. And the doctor here was against a fecal transplant for her, but I just said, I have to take care of her. Um, and so Mayo Clinic performed a, uh, a fecal transplant on her and she, she recovered. And the day they got back, I gave birth to my son. <laughs> and through, through all of this, you became very informed and then you were basically advocating initially for your own health, but now for the health of your daughter, your family, um, and understanding also the components of how understanding the, the, a normal gut flora and how, how that can get disrupted by the use of antimicrobials. If, if Speaking to the listeners, what, what would you like them to know about be, becoming this advocate for health for your own, for your family? First of all, you're worth it. You are absolutely worth it. And it can be overwhelming out there, the amount of information, and it's hard to know where to turn. But if something doesn't feel right, listen to that and, and reach out to people. You know, there are a lot of doctors and nurses and people in this in the healthcare field that really care. And there are there are ways to find answers and be your own advocate, whether it be through patient, you know, peer support, people that have gone through this, whether it be for nonprofit organizations that deal with this issue, um, whether it be just, you know, you'll get into a network of people even when you don't know you're really looking for it because you're, you're focused on this topic, you know that something has to change, something is wrong, you're going to find help. It is there. And uh, it can make the difference between life and death for you in these situations. This is serious. And, and your life is, is absolutely worth it. You've since you know, gotten involved in creating awareness about antibiotic resistance, creating awareness about C. difficile, and really advocating as a, as a citizen uh, for this knowledge, to sharing of the knowledge and, and really education. Talk a little bit about, about the different organizations you've been involved with, maybe some of your, your work with the media and things that you've done and, 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 and why it was so important to you. And, and thank you for asking that question. That's such a, such a good one. I, you know, this has gone beyond my wildest dreams. And I am, I am absolutely convinced that anytime you go through something, no matter how bad it is, if you use it to help others, it is not in vain ever. 
it's worth it. And so, you know, we were um, in Parents Magazine. We've been, you know, Washington Post um, on Russian TV and the local papers and, and, and Healthline, various other stories. And that's reached, a you know, a wide list of different types of people, you know. And so, um, you know, I, right now I'm on the board of the Peggy Lillis Foundation and, and their advocacy council. And I absolutely love that organization. They are the leading um, CDF um, organization here. And um, they just really provide a lot of support and also a platform to advocate change on Capitol Hill. You know, we want to make CDF a nationally notifiable disease because we don't really know the scope of these numbers. And uh, what we do know is scary, but what we don't know is even scarier. And so, um, you know, they do a lot. And also just they offer a lot of peer support. There's a care guide out there now on, on their website. And so through them and also through just myself personally, I want to spread the word because it's very important. And I have been contacted by countless people who are just really struggling and they're alone and they're scared that they're going to die and they feel like a nuisance and they even feel guilty about being sick. And I just don't want anybody to feel that way. So I encourage everybody listening, you can make a huge difference in one life or countless lives just by caring and just by educating and just by, you know, networking and being there for people. Good afternoon. Um, Marnie and, and uh, colleagues and friends, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Cliff McDonald. I am the Associate uh, Director for Science in the Division of uh, Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Our division is responsible for investigating, tracking, and prevention of healthcare-associated infections and antibiotic resistance. Since soon after my arrival um, in the division, almost 20 years ago, I've been studying C. difficile and the infections it causes in U.S. hospitals and around the world. So I want to talk about, the, obviously, there's the role CDC plays in combating C. difficile infections, and you're, you're the expert in that space. And in 2019, the CDC published their antibiotic-resistant threats report. And in the report, C. difficile disease was classified as an urgent threat. Yeah, yes. Uh, actually, C. difficile infections were first designated uh, by the CDC in the 2013 AR report as an urgent threat. And then they were continued to be so designated in the 2019 report. In the 2019 report, C. difficile is one of five urgent threats, along with 11 serious threats and two concerning threats. The decision to designate a pathogen as either an urgent, serious, or a concerning public health um, threat considers the burden of the pathogen, defined as the number of lives disrupted, the severity of the illness it causes, and the number of deaths. It also considers the limited number of available therapies and how effective they are, or ineffective. Uh, finally, it considers the likelihood of spread, 
Well, C. difficile as a pathogen fits the bill of an urgent threat in all three of these areas. With nearly 225,000 infections and 13,000 deaths in 2017 among hospitalized patients. It has only a couple effective therapies and, of course, has a high rate of transmission. So although we haven't seen significant resistance to the usual antibiotics used to treat C. difficile, antibiotic use plays an integral role in producing susceptibility to infection. And on that basis, it is considered alongside other antibiotic resistance threats, resistant threats. You mentioned the 2013 report, and thank you for doing that, because that was the first antibiotic resistance threat report that came out. Can you talk, tell us a little bit about the difference in the overall burden of disease that was noted in 2013 versus in the 2019 report for C. difficile? What, what changes have happened in that? Yes, the, the, there, there have been, uh, the good news, um, is that while the number of infections have been steady or increasing slightly in the community, uh, the number of infections have decreased in healthcare settings, especially when one considers the different sensitivity of tests used to diagnose infections. One challenge we have with C. difficile is the organisms just being present or even its toxins being present, whether they're causing illness or whether they're only colonizing the person. Um, and that maybe another process is responsible for the diarrhea that the person's experiencing. So that's a problem we have with C. difficile. Because no test alone can diagnose the infection, it's, it's important that providers consider the diagnosis of C. difficile infection, not only early in the patient's course, but also in the context of other conditions and medications, say, that might cause diarrhea. Improving the use of tests and how C. difficile is diagnosed is, is one area of active research, and I'm happy to talk more about that, but it's known as diagnostic stewardship which like antibiotic stewardship involves use of the right test in the right patient at the right time. You mentioned, and I do want to get into that with you and, and explore that, that more about the ongoing research, but I think it is important to mention, and this was noted in the, in the re recent 2019 report, just the correlation between C. difficile and, uh, infections and antibiotic use. And so it's a way of, in a sense, track um, the overall antibiotic stewardship and consumption. Yes, and and we have seen, um, you know, encouraging improvements in the hospital side of things, especially the hospital onset uh, C. difficile. In the community, we call that community associated C. difficile that has its origins all in the community, and we hadn't seen those same kind of improvements. Um, overall, the trend in the community has been steady or slightly increasing while in, in hospitals or what we call healthcare associated C. difficile, there's been declines. So let's talk about the ongoing research to reduce the burden of, of C. difficile disease. What are some of the key areas of that sure. either you're working on or key areas that you see that have the potential to have impact? Yeah, and I mentioned that diagnostic stewardship and uh, it isn't just um, C. difficile testing. But so in the case of C. difficile testing, we've had these more sensitive diagnostics, the PCR, the polymerase chain reaction tests, 
known as we also call them nucleic acid amplification tests. The first being approved for C to seal back in 2008. Um, they are much more sensitive. They aren't as specific though uh, for actual disease um, being caused by C. difficile. They, they are more likely to detect colonization. So again, it's very important that, that they be ordered in the right patient. And then what we mean by that is patient who has a likelihood of having C. difficile uh, largely through having the right symptoms, diarrhea, unexplained diarrhea specifically, as I said, other medications. We find that a lot of these tests can be ordered in patients who've just received laxatives. And so um, that, you know, has another explanation, of course, the diarrhea. And and we'll talk about the treatment, but, um, but uh, you know, that treatment can also cause its own problems. And so we want to be sure that patients uh, actually have CDFCL. In fact, that takes me to the other big area that we've been doing a lot of research, and that is um, the uh, human microbiome. Um, and specifically, uh, in the case of C. difficile, the gut microbiome. Now, the human microbiome consists of all the microorganisms that live in and on the body, along with their genetic and metabolic functions. Our microbiome uh, evolved with humankind uh, over millions of years and forms an important part of who we are, effectively functioning like another human organ. Um, in the case of C. difficile, our microbiome normally protects us from infection or even becoming colonized with the organism. Uh, when this microbiome becomes perturbed, usually as a result of antibiotic exposure, uh, but other medications and diet can also have an impact, our bodies lose this natural resistance to C. difficile. C. difficile has also been sort of the poster child for treating a disease through manipulating the microbiome. And that's been done mainly through fecal microbiota transplantation. And it's actually become now commonplace to treat multiply recurrent C. difficile infection. Um, and so I mentioned before how up to 20% of people can have a first recurrence. Um, about 20% of those can then also have a second recurrence. If you get out to the third overall episode of the second recurrence, now you're looking off into like a 50% chance of recurring after that and after that and after that. And some people can go into this cycle of every time they're tapered off the medications, whether it be um, vancomycin or fidaxomycin, they go and they recur again. And that's because the microbiome just hasn't got back into, into its place. And that's where fecal microbiota transplantation, just to make it very clear, that's actually taking stool from a healthy person Often it's been a family member, and then sometimes uh, stool banks have been developed, and then transplanting that usually through an enema. But there's actually also uh, uh, groups that have put them into uh, freeze-dried uh, these feces into pills uh, or capsules. Um, and then this is an active area of, um, of uh, pharmaceutical development um, to actually get at what are the microbes in these feces that are then preventing recurrence. And, and it is very effective in those people who can have multiple, multiple recurrences that are very, very high risk. And then they've done randomized control trials and shown that the fecal microbiota transplantation can really uh, turn that situation around. 
specifically with fecal microbiota transplantation, it's been shown how antibiotic resistance genes, the number of genes, this reservoir. So, so people have had a lot of antibiotics. They get colonized with C. difficile. Sometimes they go on and develop C. difficile infection. They also often are colonized with other multidrug resistant organisms. And you can see these high levels of antibiotic resistance genes in their, in their gut microbiome. And it's partly again that disruption has opened up the niche, not only for C. difficile, but these other organisms to colonize. And with fecal microbiota transplantation, we've seen those antibiotic resistance genes drop way down and effectively, in some instances, clear them totally of that colonization with these other pathogens. So that's been seen with C. difficile. Uh, and so that's a promising area for other um, control of antibiotic resistance. And then I'll just mention, too, that we, we realize now that the microbiome is key and integral for a host of modern chronic illnesses from asthma to allergy um, to the metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes. These are all been associated with an altered or dysfunctional microbiome. Uh, so CDC is investing uh, significantly into research into how we can measure the protection afforded by our microbiomes and the degree to which specific antibiotics erode this uh, protection. So the idea is to, to promote the development of diagnostics along with new antibiotics um, and other treatments for infections that reduce the damage to the microbiome and thereby reduce the risk of C. difficile infection. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about current therapy or traditional therapy and the, the, the relapse and, and, and that sort of thing that it makes it very difficult to clear the infection. Um, you know, the first important aspect of treatment is actually stopping any other offending antibiotics whenever possible. So if someone was maybe, you know, getting an antibiotic, you know, probably they have another infection that needs to be actively treated, but maybe they don't. Maybe uh, people were just, you know, sort of finishing a few days of therapy. It wasn't even clear they still needed that. Well, stopping that is, is critical whenever possible. Uh, and then using only these recommended drugs for treatment until recently, only oral vancomycin um, uh, or fidexamycin were equivalently recommended as therapy. So either one was put forth. And then just last week, there was some updated guidance that also came out from that same body. That's the Infectious Disease Society uh, of America. And they, uh, as of just last week, have uh, begun recommending fidexomycin as the preferred therapy over vancomycin. Um, now, I, I should have prefaced my remarks when I said vancomycin or fidaxomycin, and I said that as only because previously, before that, and, and many people probably are still using the drug metronidazole. Metronidazole has been used historically as another medication. Um, the, the 2017 guidelines I mentioned that I was a part of came out saying no, vancomycin or fidaxomycin are the preferred drug over metronidazole. Um, and we know that that has not been completely, you know, that, that practice of using metronidazole has not passed away totally. One of the problems, and you were alluding to that, is that up to 20% of these patients, after they're successfully treated for 10 days, which is the recommended treatment duration, up to 20% will then recur. Um, and the recurrence is anything we define as greater than two weeks 
after the diagnosis up to six weeks. But recurrences can certainly occur out to six months, but a lot of them occur in that two to six week window. Like I said, up to 20%, um, and maybe in some populations even higher. You know, the, another key strategy though is, uh, to prevent those recurrences is try not to give unnecessary, again, antibiotics can be life-saving. We can talk more about that, but, but, um, in that window of vulnerability to recurrence, two to six weeks, especially, but even out to six months, if you can avoid other antibiotic exposure, because that will increase the recurrence. Now there is, in fact, another um, tool in the toolbox, um, and it was also just recently recommended now from the Infectious Disease Society of America, and that's uh, bezalotuximab. This is a monoclonal antibody, and it can be given at the end of therapy. Um, and it, it brings out that not only the microbiome is an important uh, host defense or, or human defense, but our own immune system is, too. That these toxins, our body can produce antibodies against the toxins, and they can effectively make you immune to the toxins. And that's the principle of using um, the bezotoximab. Um, I won't say that our immunity is 100%, but we've known for a long time that after people have C. difficile, they have an increase in their antibodies to toxins naturally. Yeah, for our listeners that aren't aware, the diseases, the severity of the disease is actually caused by the toxins that this organism secretes and that the effects of those toxins on the, right. on the gut mucosa. So right. that, that other therapy of, a, of an antibody that combine and neutralize the toxins yeah. being given or your own immunity for a period yes. of time right. is right. beneficial. Yes. So also in your role, as a thought leader, you're also an educator, as you are today on this podcast. So as you shift to the caregiver, um, and I guess that could be a family caregiver or it could be your your clinician, what, what do, are the questions do you think that they should know uh, about this disease and understand about the diagnosis and care? Yes, and some of it's what we already touched on is just that these tests no test can really define the presence of C. difficile infection. It can define the presence of the organism. Uh, it can define the presence even of the toxin. It, and in between, it defines the presence of a toxin-producing organism. So the clinician first, when they're seeing the, the patient, is to think about the disease in the context of their overall clinical situation, and then be looking at the test and what tests they're ordering. And then, as we've talked about, be using the right therapy. The, the patient, uh, I think, should we should all, you know, we're all potential patients there, right? Let's remember the C. difficile is an opportunistic pathogen, meaning that it takes advantage uh, of, of something or somewhere we've, you know, our own defenses have been broken down. And its ascension as a public health threat uh, and our increased recognition of this as a threat it's highlighted the importance of the human microbiome. I want to just come back to that. And that's not only for the uh, prevention of this disease itself, but as an important platform to prevent and address many diseases and antibiotic resistance more generally.
Hi, I'm Libby Dodds-Ashley. I'm a pharmacist by training, and I've been an antibiotic steward for over 20 years. My current role is I help do stewardship in a network of over 30 community hospitals in the Southeast United States. I'm based at Duke University in the medical school there, where we not only help perform these stewardship services, but we try to study the best practices in antibiotic use to help improve it for patients in the future. Libby, before we get started on our topic today, that is Clostridium difficile infections, for our listeners, if could you just give us some background of how do you became interested in infectious diseases as a career? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, I did my residency training at Duke, and I actually came to Duke to train to be a cardiology pharmacist. But what I noticed is that in cardiology, it was all about you know the current literature and studies in 45,000 or 65,000 patients, and you had to know how to apply the data correctly in all the different scenarios, but there was always an answer, I felt like. When I did my infectious diseases rotations, it was more like getting to be a detective, figuring out what was going on in the patient. We didn't always have a firm answer about what it was. And then when we did, there wasn't always a clear answer on how to treat it or how to prevent those infections in the future. And so just the ability to constantly be challenging yourself and exploring and creating new strategies to improve care of patients is really what brought me over to the ID side and I haven't left since. So returning to our topic for Clostridium difficile, there's risk factors that predispose you to to this infection. Could you describe some of those? Yeah, so lots of things have been investigated and associated with C. difficile. Things that are commonly cited being female is one. Having advanced age, some say over 65, some say over 60, some over 70, but certainly advanced age plays a role. Being on immunosuppressive treatments like chemotherapy if you have cancer or some of our rheumatology diseases now that are associated with immunosuppressive therapies that are much more common in patients. Uh, You know, we used to just think of those as cancer patients or maybe a patient who got a solid organ transplant, but there's lots of conditions now that uh, receive immunosuppressive therapies as part of a regular regimen. Some acid suppressive therapy. So if you have, you know, reflux and take a proton pump inhibitor, that has been associated, um, although maybe not as definitively as some other things, but hands down, the most common risk factor for getting C. difficile is receiving antibiotics. And that has been shown time and time again. And it is associated really with any antibiotic. There are some where it's more common, but even the antibiotics we use to treat C. difficile have been shown to cause it in some isolated cases. So antibiotic therapy, far and away the biggest risk. In your role as an antibiotic steward, you work with a lot of clinicians to help them understand the diagnosis, the treatment, and the risk factors associated with C. difficile. What are some of the biggest challenges that you encounter in working alongside some of the fellow clinicians in the hospitals? Yeah, diagnosis of C. difficile is not straightforward. So we have tests that can find it. So those those are readily available. But the issue with C. difficile is that it might live in our gut and not cause a problem. Just the fact that it's there does not necessarily mean that it's causing disease. Um, But the best tests we have are just whether or not the organism is present at all. And the tests that are a little less sensitive are the ones that tell us if it's producing toxin or actually causing an infection. So as a result, there is a possibility with C. difficile that depending on the test you use, you might be 
completely overdiagnosing it in a lot of patients. There are other causes of diarrhea too, or you might be underdiagnosing it and missing cases that can go on to worsen and have patients get sicker. It's really a challenge. And for our hospitals in particular, we're helping them to come up with strategies to use the tests in sequence even, where we use two or three tests in some cases to best identify patients who need treatment for C. difficile. But it's, it's not always easy um, to deploy those in a systematic fashion. You know, clinicians need answers to be able to treat patients as quickly as possible. There are, you know, diarrhea in hospitalized patients is very common. And it's a, it's a big burden for the lab. It's a big question for clinicians. You know, and it's a lot of work for the nurses and the nursing assistants caring for these patients to get these samples. And so testing... It sounds like it should be so simple to test someone and know if they have C. difficile, but we spend a lot of time talking about the best testing strategies, and there's no one-size-fits-all. And there's even some difference in the recommendations between the U.S. and the European guidelines about what's best. So what are, what are some of the challenges that you, you're facing in treating these individuals that do get diagnosed with C. difficile? First and foremost, you have to assess what's going on with the patient. Is there anything here that we can take away that's not needed? So we reassess their acid suppressive therapy or their proton pump inhibitor if they're on one. We take a, a close look at their antibiotics. But the reality is antibiotics are still needed to treat patients. You know, they, they might be a patient with a really life-threatening infection. We can't take the antibiotics away. So then we try to adjust them and maybe get them off of antibiotics that might be uh, more broad spectrum and more likely to cause C. difficile to be able to run rampant in their gut, if it, that's at all possible. And then we have to give them a treatment for their C. difficile. And that's also not easy. We, we don't have that many drugs on the shelf for this is the reality. And historically, we used an antibiotic called metronidazole or flagyl. Uh, many people may have taken that for other reasons, and that's really fallen out of favor. It doesn't work as well as some other agents, and it is especially prone to having relapses. So you get, uh, even after your first case of C. diff appears to go away, it, will, it might come back very quickly, or if you ever receive a whiff of another antibiotic again. And so that's really fallen uh, down in preference in the guidelines, but what's left are drugs that we don't have great access to all the time for a whole host of reasons. Um, there's a drug that people, we, we use uh, by vein in patients in the hospital a lot and sometimes on the community for uh, a MRSA infection you might have heard of, a bad resistant infection called vancomycin. But if we give that orally, it can work to treat the C. difficile. Um, there's some logistics to doing that. You have to um, there are some formulations you can uh, buy that are, but they're very expensive or maybe not covered by insurance. Um, there's some kits that you can use to make it or get it from compounding pharmacies, but that always creates some logistical challenges for patients. And so it's something we always have to consider. And there's a newer drug called fidaxomycin that's also available. Um, again, it, it's still not in generic form. And so it's very expensive sometimes for patients. And so acquiring it or even finding pharmacies that stock it, you know, even if we start it on a patient in the hospital, we sometimes have trouble transitioning patients over to that and sending them home just because we don't even have a local pharmacy that has it on the shelf and they have to order it. And we really need these patients to get treatment. It's important that the patients complete a course because that is also a associated with less relapses. So we don't want to send patients out and find out 10 days later they didn't go fill their discharge prescription for their C. diff treatment because that would be devastating as well. 
So lots of challenges due to few drugs. Some of them are expensive. Um, there are strategies. You know, it's not completely impossible, but we, uh, you know, it, it just takes a little bit more sleuthing and some dedicated attention. So it's not as simple as just writing a script on the way the patient is leaving the hospital and you're guaranteed that they're going to get treatment. So we, we need to spend some time and focus on it. And that's, that's really one of the challenges. Um, and then if for patients who have the relapse disease, there's even greater treatment challenges there where we get into more um, invasive and novel therapies. And C. difficile doesn't just occur in hospital settings. There's, there's, it's, it's occurring in the community setting and other outpatient and nursing home settings. And you, you focus some of your attention there as well. And, and the use of antibiotics in nursing homes and outpatient settings as part of your stewardship activities. Yeah, that was, um, it was when I was up in Rochester, New York, and we were given the challenge by actually some local insurance companies to say, why is there so much C. diff here in town where, you know, they have all their claims data. They knew that there was a lot. And when we went and looked, um, we found that it wasn't always clear where the C. diff was coming from. So we might have cases, certainly diagnoses happen in the hospital, but then we had cases happening just out in the community. And we went and looked at where those patients were. And sometimes they were residents of nursing homes. Sometimes they had been in a hospital, gone to a nursing home-based rehab facility, and then were home. So it looked like they were home, but they'd really had a lot of exposure. And when we started plotting where all these patients had been, we realized it was just a continuous cycle. You know, there'd be hospital use of antibiotics or antibiotics acquired at an outpatient doctor's office. And then, you know, maybe the patient would get C. diff in the community, but that C. diff would be bad enough. It caused them to come in the hospital. And then from there, they end up having to go to the nursing home for rehab. And, you know, it's really, everything was so interrelated. We realized that C. diff isn't an isolated problem that just happens in one place or another. Uh, because patients with C. diff get sick enough to come in the hospital on their own. And then because of other reasons we give antibiotics in the hospital, we cause C. difficile. And that really caused us to dig into the whole process. And in that work, we got very involved with the nursing homes. And in nursing homes, care is a little bit different. Uh, there are providers who cover all the nursing homes, but they aren't always on site. And a lot of things that are done are very protocol driven and done over the telephone. So if a patient means a certain set of criteria, it prompts a phone call to a provider. And it's hard, you know, and this was especially pre-COVID, we may have developed a little bit more, but it's usually not a video visit. You know, it's usually just a, a nurse or a nurse assistant giving symptoms to someone over the phone. And so often when that happens, when someone's, you know, mental status changes, or maybe they develop a fever, until they can get there to adequately assess frequently an antibiotic is given, you know, just prescribed over the telephone and started. And then it might be a day or two until the provider has a chance to come see the patient and assess and determine what's appropriate for continuing those antibiotics. And as a result, we see a lot of antibiotic use in our nursing homes. And a, a, a drug that is commonly given in that setting is the fluoroquinolones. Um, for lots of reasons, they work well for pathogens in the urine. If you're a nursing home and you have to stock a limited number of drugs, it's a convenient one. It treats the lungs, it treats the urine, it treats the belly, you know, it treats kind of everywhere. So it's a good one to have there. But those antibiotics are actually some of the most commonly associated with C. diff. And so we were able to work with nursing homes on a whole host of things. One, talking about when antibiotics aren't needed. And that's 
that's really where a lot of the work needs to happen in C. diff. But then also talking about treatment alternatives that aren't fluoroquinolones that we can easily give to people and get into them. And, you know, just to elaborate a little bit more on your effort here, you with your colleagues published a paper on on this project and your hospital-based antimicrobial stewardship team assisted these nursing homes mm-hmm. to, first you had your data and then you implemented some protocols and then tracked data over time. And I think the your ability to have impact on antibiotic usage and then C. difficile was was um, very dramatic. So just a little bit about the, the, the findings and the overall impact you felt you had in that space. Yeah. So we were able to work with the nursing homes and we did a lot of onsite education and we went in and we educated everyone because not everyone realized the role they were playing in ongoing C. difficile. And so we did a lot around those various protocols and we're able to show that we decreased overall antibiotic use when an antibiotic was used, that it was less often a fluoroquinolone. And then most impressive and exciting for us is across the city, we saw a 30% drop in C. difficile. And so it shows that when you have everyone working together on the same team, you can make a difference. Libby, education is a big part of this. And it, it sounds like that you and your team are very focused in that space. Do you also feel that it's, you know, your efforts in educating with the, with the patients or the caregivers themselves? How do you reach them? Yeah, you know, that's hard because we're not always there. We do design, we've done some creative things throughout the network. So in one of the hospitals where we help do stewardship, we actually have a video for the families to watch. Uh, maybe it's a little boring sometimes while you're in the hospital sitting there. So we have a whole uh, video explaining antibiotics and why we don't always use them. Um, we have done signage in facilities. You know, it's really important that caregivers get involved in these decisions about using antibiotics and their loved ones and, and understanding why we sometimes don't want to use antibiotics. And that's really an important part of the conversation because it can, it can be so disappointing if you're trying to advocate for yourself or your loved one who's a patient to say, you know, I really think this is an infection. And if the provider just says no and moves on, it doesn't mean they're not listening. You know, there might be really good reasons And so if we can kind of preload that with the understanding that we really, we want to do whatever is best to keep your loved one or yourself as a patient safe and uh, give you the best care in this hospital. And that means using the least amount of antibiotics we absolutely have to. You know, the reason I do this is I need antibiotics to treat people 10 years from now. And antibiotics, they're the only drugs we give to people where if I give you a drug, it might mean that it might not work for your mother in six months. And that's really different. And so that's one of the reasons that we really work so hard on this and and education is so key. At the end of each interview, I asked each guest the same question. What actions can we all take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections? Getting educated as to what to look for as a caregiver and as a patient. If you're on antibiotics, um, you need to be aware of what can happen and and, uh, our antibiotic use. They are a wonder drug, and I am so glad that they're around, but... 
you have to use them responsibly and appropriately because they're overused. And so when they're needed, you want them to work. When they're not needed, you don't want to take them because it is killing your microbiome, which is keeping you healthy. Well, I just want to come back to and just say that it's important that we, we see our microbiome health as something important to maintain. And we should all be thinking about it as another a component of health, including what we eat, thinking about a rich plant-based uh, fiber diet, um, variety, look for a variety of colors on your plate <laughs> uh, from uh, different plants. It's really fiber that feeds our microbiome. Uh, getting regular exercise, enough rest, of course. And then also, I, I will come back to avoiding an unnecessary use of antibiotics or other medications, too, that could disrupt the microbiome. But not saying that we shouldn't use them, but keeping in mind that balance of risk and benefit. I'd say first and foremost, uh, you know, question an antibiotic when it is happening and, and feel free. I, you know, I... Uh, I've never, I, I work with a lot of providers in hospitals and in the community, and I've never seen one upset when you ask, do, do we really need this antibiotic? I'm just curious. Uh, it's almost like a breath of fresh air. So just like you would many other medications that might be prescribed to you, always stop and pause about an antibiotic and question if it's really necessary. You have been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the threat of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. This podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, SIDRAP, .umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at SIDRAP underscore ASP and at AM Resistance. Thank you for listening.